Amen. You say God is good? I know I'm having you stand a lot, but let's, let's stand one more time. Because I want us to pray together. We're beginning tonight the greatest sermon ever preached. Greatest sermon ever preached. It was preached in one sitting. I can't wrap my mind around that. That our Lord Jesus preached the Sermon in the, on the Mount in one sitting. Ad living. No notes flowing from him. Because the Sermon on the Mount is it's absolutely profound. Whatever you're struggling with in life right now, it's covered in the Sermon on the Mount. It is. And it's the greatest sermon ever preached. So he begins with the greatest beginning of any sermon ever preached, and that's the Beatitudes. Amen? Can everybody say Beatitudes? You know where I'm going with that. The how to be attitudes. The attitudes that ought to be. Amen? All right. So let's just pray over this. Father, we just thank you. We come to the Word of God. This is the Word of God. It's the Word from the God-man. All man, all God, all God, all man. Jesus, who always was and is and always will be. And we thank you, Lord, for these matchless words recorded by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we begin this series, it will change us, rearrange us, Transform us, fill us with wisdom to walk in victory. And we just thank you for it. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and just say, Lord, tonight, speak to my heart. Change me in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is the best you're ever going to hear. Amen. Greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached. Now, I want us to read the Beatitudes together. It doesn't take long, but there's, uh, depending on how you want to approach it, there's eight of them or there's nine of them. I'm going to deal with it like there's eight of them. But if you count hunger and thirst uh, as two instead of one, there's nine. But I'm going to deal with hunger and thirsting as one, so there's eight. I just need to get that out. So let, let's read. I'm going to put it up there. Okay, let's read everybody out loud together. Matthew 5, 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I'm hearing about five of you. Everybody, read it out loud with me. Come on. It's on the screen. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers... For they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Isn't that wonderful stuff? That is good stuff. Now, the Lord's discourse called the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. 
You know, when I was battling fear in, in, in my life, when I first came to the Lord the first few years, my, my number one enemy was fear because of all the mess I've been involved in. So I learned that, that if you memorize the word of God, it healed your mind. Did you catch that? All right. It heals the mind. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the mind, will, and the emotions. That's how you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. So I did a lot of erasing and replacing, right? Erasing the old ways of thinking that brought me a lot of fear and new ways of thinking. So one of the things I memorized was the whole Sermon on the Mount. I'm not bragging to be sure. I did it to survive. So I decided I would memorize the whole thing, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So I divided it into sections or themes and I just committed the whole thing to memory so that by the time I was done, I could quote to you every word of the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, without stopping. And it helped heal my mind. I'm telling you, this is not a normal word. The Bible is not a normal book. There's not another book like it. Do you get me? There's not another book like it. It's inspired by God. It's given by God. It's the Word of God. And so it's quick and it's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it discerns the hidden thoughts and motivations of your heart and my heart. So it's not a normal word. It's a supernatural book, and, and we need to look at it that way every time we open it. Amen? I do. I don't know about you, but I do. Here comes the word of God. So now, here's Jesus. He goes up into a mountain. We don't know which mountain. I used to think Mount of Olives, but there's no proof of that at all. It was just one of the several mountains that he could have chosen uh, in the area where he was. And he went up into the mountain. There was a large crowd following him. And it says his disciples got in the lead of the crowd It says his disciples came to him. So his disciples are right in front of him and behind them is a massive crowd. And Jesus sat down. He opened his mouth and this incredible teaching flowed forth. It's just amazing. And so he starts with the Beatitudes. Now, the beatitude, or the word beatitude, comes from the word beatify, which means to have supreme blessedness. So when you talk about the beatitudes, you're talking about being supremely blessed. And I'm not talking about money. Okay? I'm not talking about money. Because we're going to see that none of the things he lists in the beatitudes have anything to do with money. It's other blessings. It's things money could never buy. It's things money could never purchase for you. It is the things the world is dying for. All right? So, beatitude means supreme, supremely blessed. So, you want to be supremely blessed? All right? Then we need to understand the beatitudes. Uh, He begins with the words, with every one of them, blessed are. Blessed are. Now, some people have called the beatitudes the be happy attitudes. And that's 
That's nifty, but this it's way more than that, all right? It's more than having a, a, a right attitude. So it's more than the be happy attitudes. The Greek word for blessed is makarios, and it means happy to the point that others envy you. When was the last time somebody was envious of your extreme overflowing happiness? Okay? Happy to the point of being envied. Happy to be envied are those. That's the idea of blessed. Blessed are those who, he gives eight of them, eight conditions of the heart, is blessed are those happy to be envied. Amen. Now, it's the same word, Greek word, that the Greeks used to describe the island of Cyprus, which is nicknamed the Happy Isle. All right? They nicknamed Cyprus the Happy Isle. The Greeks believed that Cyprus was so beautiful, so rich in resources, so fertile, that a person would never have to leave the island because everything you would ever need for happiness was contained on that island. All you had to do was make it to the Happy Isle. Reminds me of the Happy Meal. You know, that was a stroke of genius. Somebody in in McDonald's uh, advertising uh, office did it right. Happy Meal. Who's going to deny their kid a Happy Meal? Right? Even though the little toy you get with it breaks in a couple of days and you're eating something that's not so great for you, but they were smart in calling it the Happy Meal because they connected happiness with the meal. Amen. As opposed to the sad meal. How many of you would buy a sad meal? No, but no, it's a happy meal. So you, you go in that line at McDonald's, I want a happy meal. And just something about that made you feel a little bit happy. Right? Until you got your blood work with the cholesterol levels. Then it was the sad meal. But here's the thing. No island is going to make you everlastingly happy. But Jesus in the Beatitudes is telling us eight keys to experiencing happiness to the point that others will look and envy it. Wow. So we'll note that the happiness that comes from being blessed by God is nothing like the happiness that we know in the English language. Two different things. God's blessed happiness is not the same as the English word, are you happy? Are you a happy person? Did that make you happy? No, our concept of happiness is like this. If only I had more money, I'd be happier. Can I give you a little secret? No, you won't. If you're not happy before you get more money, you won't be happy after you get more money. If only I had my health, I would be happier. If only I were successful, I would be happier. If only I had a spouse, I'd be happier. If only my kids were this, that, or the other, then I'd be happier... Uh, uh, if, if people were nicer, if God were nicer, then I'd be happy. But you know, all the things that we think are going to make us happy, when we get there, it's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow isn't there. Because happenings don't make you happy. Now that's what Jesus is going to show us. Happenings don't make us happy. As a matter of fact, the English word happy comes from the word hap, H-A-P. And that's a Middle English word from around the the 1400s. And it meant luck. Hap became happy. And it was the idea of luck, good luck, making you happy. From hap, 
we get happenstance or happenings. In other words, happiness is dependent upon circumstances or luck or the roll of the dice. But we're going to learn real happiness has nothing to do with any of those things. Real happiness is an inside job. And it comes from getting right with God. That's, that's the beginning of all happiness. You will never be happy, fully happy, abundantly happy, without being dependent on a happening until you get happy and right with God. Because getting right with God brings the peace of God, and when you walk in the peace of God, it makes you happy. Right? So the Beatitudes are, have nothing to do with a happening or roll of the dice. When Jesus said, blessed are they, he didn't qualify it. With phrases like, in most situations, happy are they. Or, given the right conditions, blessed are they. Or, if you win the lottery, blessed are you. I'm sure you've read the stories of lottery winners. They don't end up happy. No, they end up ruined, a lot of them. The pathway to blessing that Jesus teaches everybody has nothing to do with the happening. It has to do with God's promises to people who have certain spiritual conditions. And he starts with those spiritual conditions of heart and character. He starts, and, and listen, five of the eight conditions are anything but enviable or positive. Like five of the eight that he names, listen to him. Does this sound good? Does this sound positive? Does this sound like a candidate for happiness? The poor, the mourning, the hungry, the thirsty, the persecuted. But Jesus said, happy are they, blessed are they. What in the world was he talking about? Now I'm going to posit something here tonight. I see in this, these Beatitudes, a progression. Now, track with me. A progression with each of the spiritual conditions that Jesus lists. Beginning with the poor in spirit and ending with those persecuted for righteousness' sake. So it begins with somebody poor in spirit. It ends with somebody being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And in between, there are these character qualities, these conditions of the heart. And I see a progression from A to Z, from 1 to 8. Let me explain. Those who realize, for instance, that they are poor in spirit are candidates for salvation. Are they not? And those being persecuted for righteousness' sake, hey, they have grown in grace to the point they're living for God on such a level that they're actually being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. So we start out with somebody poor in spirit and we end up with somebody so mature people are attacking them. They are so bright for Jesus. So I see a progression. Perhaps the person that Jesus had in mind, here's what I'm positing, with the first beatitude is lost and they realize that they are in spiritual poverty. They realize it. Blessed are the poor who know it. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor where? In spirit. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. For instance, Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, 
Because you have said, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. But you do not know. Everybody say, do not know. That's the condition of the lost. They do not know. They don't know what? That you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't know. You think you're rich, you're deceived. You think you've got it all going on. You think you're all that in a bag of chips, but you don't know. You don't see what God sees. That in fact, you are spiritually in poverty. Miserable, wretched, poor in spirit, blind, and naked. Talk about being self-deceived. These people think they're, they have need of nothing. And, and listen to how Jesus describes them. That's what you call really self-deceived. And self-deception is the worst deception of all. But watch this. The lost person, absent the conviction of the Holy Spirit, has no idea of their true spiritual condition. The emptiness of it or the peril of it. They have no idea. You do not know. Now that's the lost person. But, so, but when they hear the gospel, because what's the gospel? The power of God unto salvation. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. So something happens when a lost person hears that gospel. The power of God accompanies it. And what happens when the power of God accompanies it? Jesus said, uh, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict. Everybody say convict. He will convict them of their sin. Uh, they realize, wow, I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I realize my sin. I have been convicted, convinced, persuaded. I see now that I'm actually not rich at all, but I'm poor. I'm poor in spirit. So I'm going to tackle the Beatitudes this way. We're going to see a progression from poor in spirit all the way to being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because here's the progression. Someone from, from, uh, from poor in spirit to mourning over their sin, to meekness, to hungering and thirsting for spiritual things, to the fruits of the Spirit, mercy, purity, and being a peacemaker, to finally being so strong they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you see the progression with me? Do you see it? I mean, to me, I can't get away from it. I got to teach it this way because I cannot escape how it just jumps at me. All right? So first we have the poor in spirit. Blessed and happy and to be envied are the poor in spirit. Why blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, everybody, and you know this, he came to rescue us from spiritual poverty. Jesus came to get us out of spiritual poverty. Total, abject, spiritual poverty. What did you have before you knew Jesus spiritually? Nothing. The bank account was zeroed out. There was nothing in savings. There was no IRA. You had nothing in the spiritual bank. But poverty. Right? And the very first somebody hear, thing that somebody hears the, hearing the gospel realizes is, wow, I'm lost. Uh, I, I, I have no riches spiritually to speak of. Up to now, I've been blind to my condition. 
But here comes the gospel. You know, when I was sitting in juvenile home and um, had never heard the gospel of Christ ever in my life, if you had said to me, hey, Jeff, how are you doing spiritually? Are you poor spiritually? I would have looked at you like you were crazy. I would have said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great, except that I'm arrested. But I would have said, I'm great, until I heard that gospel. And when I heard the gospel, I got, I mean, just, it hit me right here. It hit me right between the eyes. And suddenly I came under conviction. I didn't know what the Holy Ghost was, who he was, but I came under conviction. And you know what I realized? I have no hope in God. I am spiritually destitute. If I don't respond to this message, I'm going to die in my sins and go to hell. I have nothing in my spiritual bank account. I'm poverty stricken. I'm on the other side of the track, spiritually speaking. Jesus said the spirit of God, when he comes into a place, when he approaches a person, if they're lost, the very first thing he does is convict them. And conviction means to expose, to show somebody to be guilty. So all of a sudden, you think you're great until the Holy Spirit comes and touches your heart and convicts you and says, you're not great at all. You're guilty before God. Can I have an amen here tonight? You're guilty before God. I'm guilty. You're go we were all guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So, I, so my sin is exposed and I'm guilty before God. The Spirit of God reveals to us at the moment of coming under conviction, we're guilty for our sins, destitute of life, and we have no hope. So blessed are the poor in spirit who realize it. Why? Because Jesus came to give us an answer and a way out of that poverty. Amen? I want you to listen to Paul's description, just a couple of verses. There's a ton of them. But listen to how spiritually destitute you and I were. Ephesians 2, 1. You he made alive. Everybody say, that's me. Now, what was your condition before you were made alive? Who were dead. Dead. Now, is he just metaphorically speaking? Is he hyperbolically speaking? Is he exaggerating? No. It's the Greek word nekros. You would use it to describe a dead body. You were dead. Dead in what? Dead in your sins. Dead. You were dead. Corpse on a slab. Dead. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that in those days you were living utterly apart from Christ. You were enemies of God's children and he had promised you no help. Now listen to this description. You were lost without God and without hope. Can anybody say poor in spirit? I'm dead, I'm lost, I'm without God, and I have no hope. <laughs> you don't get much poorer than that. Amen? Thank God for Jesus who came to deliver us from such spiritual poverty and to make a way to heaven. So once we're saved, listen, we're literally enriched at, in a moment. That's why I tell you folks sometimes, uh, you're rich. So how am I rich? You're rich with the riches of God. You're rich with the riches that salvation brought to you. You are rich. Literally enriched with the good things of God. The minute you say, Jesus, come into my heart, 
He enriches you. He enriches me. You are enriched. You go from poverty to fantastically wealthy in spiritual things. L- listen to Paul again. 1 Corinthians 1.5 For in him you have been enriched in every way. Amen. Here's another one. Ephesians 3.8 To me, as Paul talking about himself, I'm the least of all the, the saints. This grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles what message? The unsearchable riches of Christ. And that is not talking about dollars or dinero. That's talking about peace with God, the Holy Spirit living within, heaven bound, the joy of the Lord, the riches of the Word of God, fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ fellowship with one another, no more condemnation, no more guilt, no more shame, no more answering for sin. We have been enriched, enriched. Amen. The Bible says God gives us richly all things to enjoy. And it promises this, that as eternity unfolds, God will continue to quote, show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. So blessed, happy, and to be envied are the poor in spirit who realize it and call on Christ. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Now Jesus goes to the next, next one, those that mourn. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed, happy, and to be envied are those that mourn. For they shall be what, everybody? Comforted. Now the word mourn, means to lament, to feel guilt. That's the word mourn. What's the first thing a person under conviction of sin experiences? Are you ready? Mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Sorrow and guilt. Oh no, I'm not right with God. When you first hear the gospel, you're hearing the good news, but it's not good news for you till you repent because you're mourning over your sin. You're mourning I'm guilty. It gives me sorrow. Jesus said, blessed and to be envied are those that mourn. What could he possibly mean? Because you don't look very blessed when you're sitting there mourning. It doesn't make sense, but here's why. Watch this, everybody, because mourning leads to repentance. Can you say it with me? Mourning leads to repentance. That's the thing here. That's the idea. First, you're poor in spirit, you realize it. Then you start mourning over your spiritual condition. And that blings, uh, leads to, brings you to repentance. Repentance, which is accompanied by God's forgiveness, peace, and comfort. Because you repent. Now listen to Paul describe how the Corinthians experienced conviction of sin as the Holy Spirit convicted them. How many of you remember the, the first time the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin? Wow, do I need to have an altar call here? Let me try that question again. How many of you remember the first time the Holy Ghost convicted you of sin? How many of you remember a time the Holy Ghost convicted you of sin? Right? Does he not do that? He doesn't condemn, he convicts. Okay? Now listen to the way Paul describes uh, how conviction of sin came upon the Corinthian church. Paul says, now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, But because your, watch this everybody, this is so important, 
Your sorrow led you to what? Repentance. For you became... Now, follow these words carefully, because he's going to make a distinction we really need to get tonight. You became sorrowful as God intended. So does God sometimes want you and I to be sorrowful? Yes. Why? Because it leads us to repentance. Now watch. And so you were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. So important. And it leaves no regret. How many of you have ever regretted that you repented and got right with God? No. It leaves no regret. Godly sorrow doesn't leave regret. But listen now to the distinction. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there's two kinds of sorrow. There's two kinds of mourning. The sorrow that godly conviction brings. I'm a sinner. I'm not right with God. Oh no. I repent and I go to Christ. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We always return. Godly sorrow bringing conviction leads to repentance that always brings us home. Okay? When when God convicts a person of sin, it invariably, it's always designed to bring you home. It's the prodigal son. It says he came to himself. That's what godly conviction does. You come to yourself. What does that mean? You realize your true condition before God. He came to himself. And that's when he said, I will return to the Father. So godly conviction, godly sorrow, never leads to regret because it leads us back home. Amen? But the sorrow of the world is completely different. The sorrow of the world involves guilt, Shame and regret with no concern for God. Godly sorrow does not point you up. It does not lead you back home. Godly sorrow does not lead you back to the Father. Godly sorrow will kill you. It will leave you in misery. Um, The world's sorrow, the sorrow the world brings, it causes no upward glance. Oh, no, I need to get right with God. No, no, no. No, you bear it all by yourself. There's no vertical focus. It's only horizontal. You're full of guilt, full of shame, full of pain, full of heartbreak, full of sorrow, full of darkness, and you are not taking it up. That's the sorrow of the world. Uh, No thought of getting right with the Lord. That never occurs to people that are experiencing worldly sorrow. So with worldly sorrow, watch this. The spirit is broken and the heart pines away under the influence of the unrelenting sorrow. If only I hadn't this, if only I hadn't that, if only I had this, and if only I had that, uh, I can't get past this, I can't get past that. Um, I am guilty today, I'll be guilty tomorrow, I'll be guilty till the day that I die. The sorrow of the world is like you're in a slave ship and the the taskmaster is the devil whipping you with condemnation, whipping you with regret, whipping you, and there is no way out of that ship. 
Are you with me? Worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is killing our culture. It kills people all the time. It's a sorrow that has no hope, no comfort, no relief of guilt. This is why worldly sorrow, i got to go ahead and say it, sometimes leads to suicide. Because what are they experiencing? I see no way out of, of my guilt, my shame, my problems. I, I can't find relief. There's no way out for me. But godly conviction will never do that. Godly sorrow will always cause you to take the extremity of your pain straight up to him who died for you and, and will forgive you and will wash you and cleanse you and give you a brand new start. This is why we bring the gospel of Christ to our sin-darkened world every which way we can. All the time, we preach the gospel. Woe unto us if we don't preach the gospel. Because when the gospel goes out, godly conviction comes and godly sorrow comes. And it always points us upward to receive our forgiveness and restoration through Christ. And then we are stood on our feet. Fresh breath is breathed into us. Fresh hope, fresh life, fresh horizons. We experience a change. So you either have worldly sorrow or by the grace of God, you're experiencing godly sorrow, which brings conviction, which leads to repentance, which leads to relief and comfort. Amen. Paul describes how true repentance manifested in the Corinthians. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. In other words, I am intent on getting this right. What eagerness to clear yourselves. I want my conscience clear. What indignation at the sin and the devil that has wrought havoc on my life. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. In other words, here you got a person that is all in with getting it right by taking everything to Christ. And the godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life and comfort in the Holy Ghost. Jesus said the mourner is going to be comforted. Amen? When they experience peace with God through Jesus Christ. So first the poor in spirit, then mourning, then comfort, then the meek. Next Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. And this is my last one for tonight. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I want you to notice with me. First, they're poor in spirit and they know it. Then they're mourning and they repent. But now we're seeing spiritual growth. Because meekness is a fruit of the spirit. So we're seeing spiritual growth in this one who was first poor in spirit and then mourning over it. But now they've got some fruit of the spirit. There's meekness. Uh, they've mourned and they've repented. They've experienced God's comfort and peace through salvation. So the spiritual fruit of meekness is appearing in their life. You know, you, there's no way that you got really saved that we don't start seeing some fruit of the Spirit. No way. Because now you're a brand new person. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. What's the old? The old Adam stuff. The old Adam nature. The old is passed away. And all has become brand new. All right? So we're going to start seeing some fruit or you weren't really saved. Can I be that bold? 
I love you enough to tell you. If you say you're saved, but there's never been any fruit at all, no change at all, you didn't get saved. No, you didn't get saved. Am I talking about being perfect? No. Am I talking about being Mr. Christian overnight? No. But I am saying if you've been saved, it'll show. It'll show. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, it will show. Don't tell me you've been saved if there's nothing to show for it. No, fruits of repentance. There's fruit from repentance. So the spiritual fruit of meekness. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 5.22. Here's what is going to be growing on a truly born-again person. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And what's this next one? Meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control against such there is no law. Now I got to tell you, meekness is not easy to define. It's really not. The best way I can define it is to kind of describe the way it looks when it manifests in a person's life. Um, meekness is strength held in check. Meekness, for instance, is the refusal to retaliate when you're wronged. The meek person will trust that God will vindicate them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will repay. So if you don't have meekness and you've been offended by somebody, your strength, your anger, your tendency to retaliate is not held in check. You, you let it go. It all comes out. But the meek person will have strength, strong emotions held in check. Are you with me? Um, the fruit of meekness is evidence of, of really true greatness and largeness of soul. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Didn't he? Come to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. Did Jesus have strength held back? Oh, yeah. When they were sitting there doing to him what they did after he was arrested, he said, I could call on 12 legions of angels right now, and they would come and vaporize you guys and whisk me out of here. But what did he do? It was strength held in check. Are you with me? It comes from a heart that is too mature to be moved by little insults. Okay? The meek are not easily offended. <laughs> well, where's our culture? Because our culture is offended. Tell me somebody that's not offended. Right? Everybody's offended. The news is full of people being offended and doing crazy things because they were offended. And you look at what offended them and did it to them, and, and many times it's nothing. But what has happened is political correctness, don't offend, don't offend. The sacred cow is don't offend anybody. Don't judge anybody. Don't mess with anybody's apple cart. Don't, don't cramp anybody's style. Don't tell them they're wrong and you're right. Don't offend. It has created a hypersensitive culture that is constantly offended over the littlest things. Here's the thing. 
The person that is constantly ruffled, who allows every little insult or injury uh, to throw them off uh, and to ignite a storm of anger and retaliatory actions within, is at the mercy of every person that chooses to disturb him. And it doesn't take much. If you're always easily offended, you're always going to be easily offended. I hate being offended. I hate it because it chews you up alive. Are y'all with me? Our whole culture is offended all the time. We've become a bunch of babies. A bunch of babies. Boo, hoo, hoo. A bunch of babies. I think people like Russia, China, North Korea look at us and go, what a bunch of Because you said something that hurt my feelings. So I'm unfriending you on Facebook. There, take that. Oh no, I've been unfriended. I've been unfriended. What will I do? You know what you do? Big deal. They weren't your friends anyway. But we're just a big nation of crying, boo-hooing babies because we're so easily offended. But meekness is the opposite. Meekness is the opposite. Meekness is strength held back. Here's, Here's what meekness does. It takes petty insults in stride. And it moves on down the road. If I spent all my time dealing with people who threw petty insults my way, that's all I'd ever be doing. But no, I I don't have time to deal with with the petty insults. No. Why should I give anybody that level of power? I'm not going to give somebody that level of power over my life. Unfriend me. Go ahead. Make my day. (laughs) There's a verse in Jeremiah, and I'm going to close with this, that has spoken to me a hundred times when I could have become, or when I could have walked in a fence. The context is this. Jeremiah is really being bugged that the, that the wicked are prospering, right? It, it's an old problem. We've all experienced it. How are you letting these billionaires that blaspheme you and curse, curse you all day long prosper with all that money? And, and it, eats, it eats you up if you let it, okay? So Jeremiah is all bothered with it. And he's sick of being a prophet and being persecuted. Here I am. I'm your man. I'm prophesying all the time. And all I get is grief. And these wicked are out there having the time of their life. I don't understand it. God said this to him. If you have run with the footmen and they have worn you out, how will you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which they trusted, they wearied you, how are you going to do when the floods hit the Jordan River? In other words, Jeremiah, you're letting the smaller stuff take you down. Far greater battles are coming with far bigger giants. And if you're letting these things take you down, how are you going to deal with the bigger giants? In other words, Jeremiah, get over it. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. That was uh, just an old Jewish way of saying, 
when, when the Jews of Jesus' day would, would say, uh, you know, may you inherit the land. They were just pulling from their Old Testament history. And it was their way of saying, may you be greatly blessed. Jesus is saying, they will inherit the earth. That is, they will experience great blessing. But also, one day, they will step into the New Testament promised land, which is heaven. Amen. Amen. Can we stand together tonight? Isn't that good stuff tonight? Can we thank the Lord? Come on. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. How many of you got something out of the meekness? The meekness. Yeah, that's, that's so good. We need to pray because we're, we're in such a, oh, it's such a weak culture. We got to grow a spine, folks. Giants are on the way. Giants are on the way. So I don't want to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Giant, I don't have time for you because so-and-so unfriended me. The giant, no. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you're a great God. Thank you for these beatitudes, these, the pathway to blessing, true blessing, genuine blessing. Thank you for the pathway to blessing. Help us to walk in these principles, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that when we were poor in spirit, you showed us our condition. And when we saw it, we knew we had to turn to you. Thank you for helping us to mourn over our sin, which led to repentance, which led to salvation. Thank you for the fruit of the Spirit growing in our life. Thank you, Lord God, for teaching us tonight. Thank you for meekness and helping us to walk in meekness. Strength held back. I could, but I won't. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.